Hi, I'm Paul Johnson. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Life Support. When I went to seminary, my seminary was still fighting the old liberalism of the 40s and 50s, teaching me how to be a scholar and defend the text of scripture against liberalism. And I remember, and, and these were fine men. I mean, I got a good, solid education there. But I remember thinking as a seminarian, I've never met a liberal. Show me one. <laughs> How am I going to fight this battle? But I wasn't taught, I don't think the word leadership was ever used. Everything you do from then on is different. One of the detectives, I think his name was He was Derek. a golden boy. And all we can do right now is come Extreme together. Extreme domestic violence, multiple rapes. Welcome to Life Support, hosted by Pastor Paul Johnson, the lead pastor at Ridgewood Church in Minnetonka, Minnesota. Five Stone Media's Steve Johnson recently sat down with Roger Thompson, the teaching pastor and former lead pastor at Berean Baptist Church in the Twin Cities of Minnesota. Roger's been in ministry for well over 40 years. He has a special heart for men and plenty of wisdom to share. Let's listen in on Steve and Roger. Well, I'm really honored to have Roger Thompson join us today. And Roger is a former lead pastor, but currently a teaching pastor at a large church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome, first of all. Thank you. We want to tap into some of your wisdom that you've learned over the years uh, of ministry uh, and ministering not only to the congregation, but ministering to those that minister to the congregation. Mm -hmm. What are some mm -hmm. of the lessons that you've learned? Yeah. But first of all, uh, a little bit about yourself. Okay. Tell us about where you're from, um, your family. Yeah, I was uh, born into a, a ministry family. Actually, I was born when my dad was uh, starting seminary. And then he graduated, and uh, his first church was in Golden, Colorado. So I grew up as a preacher's kid in the shadow of the mountains in Colorado. And um, later went to college in California. God called me into ministry and went to seminary at Denver Seminary uh, in the early 70s, uh, right in the middle of the Jesus movement, though I was not really a part of that aspect of it, but that was happening all around me. And uh, I've pastored uh, now in three churches, uh, two in Denver and one here in Burnsville, Minnesota. So about 40-some years of pastoring. All right, that's a few. A few. <laughs> so when, uh, now you mentioned the Jesus movement, and, and even before we get into yeah. some of this other stuff, the Jesus movement came out of a, a tumultuous situation in this country, right? Yes. I mean, yes. really, so the 60s yes. maybe were playing a lot like we see today. Do you see any analogies? I've seen, for the last several years, I've seen uh, parallels. I'm sure historians would be more precise, but I... I was in college when uh, the 1968 Democratic Convention, I think it was in Chicago, and there were riots. Uh, I remember Kent, Kent State, the shooting of students, the, the Vietnam protests, the whole struggle with uh, the draft. I was on a Christian campus where uh, some were coming home as veterans and going to college, and others were saying, no, I would never go in the Army. I'm resisting that. I'm a conscientious objector. So my early formative young adult years were in that Vietnam, um, and then the, the Jesus movement began, you know, out of the, sort of out of Calvary Chapel in California. I was in California at the time, and I met hitchhikers and other people who were, you know, uh, 
sanctified hippies and <laughs> testifying for Jesus on the road. And, uh, and then later when we, I got married in 71 and we moved to Denver and there were many uh, students at bi- local Bible college who had become Christ followers out of that movement. So it was a, a tumultuous time uh, politically, uh, but it was also a very fruitful time. I think most historians would agree it was a genuine revival. It really went across the country. And, um, but it was wild. I mean, there was no structure. People were just doing stuff, starting communes, opening <laughs> coffee houses, uh, doing ministries, going on missions, and they had no support. They were, you know, everything now is so buttoned down and locked down, but that was a, a really a wild time. Yeah, 50 years of marriage, by the way, congratulations. Yeah, That's 50 years pretty, of marriage. pretty amazing. Yes. Going back to your seminary days, yes. um, what were you not taught in seminary <laughs> that you wish you would have been taught that you've learned over the years? Uh, well, I was never taught how to use a secretary. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't know I would ever have one. Um, I was not taught uh, a couple of realities about ministry. One was how to deal with conflict uh, in ministry and that's, that's been difficult for me anyway, temperamentally, but I certainly was not trained in that way. It's interesting, my father and my father-in-law were both in ministries. They both had small churches, 200 people, 250 people, and they were, they were shepherds. They shepherded their people. Uh, they, they were not great orators, but they were faithful teachers. When I went to seminary, my seminary was still fighting the old liberalism of the 40s and 50s, teaching me how to be a scholar and defend the text of scripture against liberalism. And I remember, and, and these were fine men. I mean, I got a good, solid education there. But I remember thinking as a seminarian, I've never met a liberal. Show me one. <laughs> how am I going to fight this battle? But I wasn't taught, I don't think the word leadership was ever used. I think it's overused today, and shepherding is underused as pastors, but I wasn't really taught how to lead or how to lead a team. I just had to learn that mm-hmm. uh, in the scrum of, of doing it and watching and making mistakes and making my own way. And um, I was very grounded in the languages, very grounded in in theology, very grounded in those kinds of things, but not in the, the practical dimensions of, of ministry. But fortunately, my seminary uh, years, I took four years to, to do three years of seminary. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, those years I was also vitally involved in a very fast-growing church. And so my practical uh, informal internship and my formal term paper writing and theology studies really, it wasn't accidental from God's standpoint, but it was certainly from my, my planning, those things blend, blended together to give me a, a great um, a leg up in, in ministry. And I'm very thankful for that. So, um, a, a pastor that we have a great amount of respect for, Chuck Swindoll, yes. yep. has recently, just recently come out and talked um, 
very candidly about some depression that his wife went through in the mm. early years of their ministry when he was a mm. pastor, and it was something they could never talk about. Mm. They had to do that in silence together. They had mm. to suffer in silence, and that took its toll yeah. on the marriage. Yeah. Uh, does that does that story, not with you personally, but does that ring true with your generation of, of pastors in the early years? You know, I... <laughs> I was always told, as a pastor, you can't have friends in your church. Mm. And that has never been the case with us. Um, there are many people we probably couldn't be friends with. Um, just they wouldn't understand our, our life. So I, I haven't felt like we have been uh, distinct as you know clergy. We've always had friends, although... The older we've gotten, the more difficult that has become. Mm. When we were all up and coming, we were in our 20s and 30s, we were all making our households together and you know, planting lawns together and fixing cars together. It was, it was easy for me to just be Roger with, mm. with people. Um, when I moved to Minnesota, I was about 41, I think, at that time. And both the Midwestern sort of deference to pastors and I think a little bit my age and the size of the church, I started being called Pastor Thompson. And I, I didn't really know how to handle that. I felt like that was such a distance, mm. you know. And, um, but, but getting back to, I, I think there, there's always a struggle uh, as a pastor knowing how transparent can I be. And a lot of that has to do with the culture, the leadership culture. It has to do with the trustworthiness or the, I should say, the, the trust that's been built with elders and the leadership of the church. And um, I've felt very fortunate that I've always, I've always had some safe haven in the churches that we've served. But I've also had some safe havens outside. Mm -hmm. So that has been very helpful. And I want to talk about that line of transparency. We've you know, we heard a young pastor recently say, you know, when I was growing up watching, you know, the, the pastors on TV, he said, I didn't know anything about their personal lives. I didn't even know if they had kids, you know. Right. So, and, he, and he's a young pastor now probably in his 30s um, of a large church. Where is, and I know that's a battle a lot of pastors um, face, where is that line? How much do you tell about your struggles from the platform? Well, I, th I think that I have been fairly, I would just say, open about my life and lifestyle. I mean, people know a lot about my family. In fact, if, if I hadn't had small children when I first learned how to preach, I wouldn't have had any illustrations. You know how that is. People probably get tired of hearing about your kids. Uh, but I've talked a lot about, about my life outside of, of what they perceive me to being. But I'll, I'll um, share with you that I was on the board of a, a ministry that ministered to pastors and uh, Christian leaders and uh, to give them counsel, often to work with them when they were in crisis or moral failure or whatever. And as I served on this board, the, the leader of the board turned to two of us who were there, were there, and we were pastors on this board. And he said, you know, you guys who are pastors you need to have a counseling intensive every four or five years. Because he said, you collect so much grunge. Mm. 
in your spirit. You face so many traumas, so many hard things, so many threats, so many things that you haven't had a chance to process. And uh, so my wife and I were about ready to go on a sabbatical, and we said, well, let's do that first. And, and, and frankly, we were, we were exhausted as we were getting ready for this uh, sabbatical. So we went for uh, four days, and uh, the intensive was we would spend about three hours in the morning with the counselor, and, and all he would do is say, well, um, how's it going? And then we... <laughs> He was very skilled but as a listener, but you know, he didn't really ask us many questions. We just kind of splurged. And we thought, we thought, here's the issue. Here's the pressure. Here's what's really bothering us. And what we discovered was, no, it wasn't out there. It was right in here. Hmm. And so one of the discoveries that I made was we were, Joanne, my wife, and I were talking one day, and, and I was describing our relationship to the counselor, and he said, Roger, you have a, a father-daughter relationship with your wife. I said, no, I don't. He said, uh, yes, you do. I said, no, I don't. He said, Joanne, what do you think? She said, yeah, he does. <laughs> <laughs> so I was cornered. It was two against one. My, my thought was, I, I said, my thought was, no, a, a father-daughter thing is this domineering, demanding uh, austere man demanding things of his wife. And that, and that is not me. But as Joanne described it through tears, she said, Roger, you are so self-sufficient. You don't ask anything of me. You don't say what kind of sandwich you want. You wouldn't ask me to, to, to go get the ketchup for you. You, know, you are so self-sufficient that I wonder if you're, you're here and I'm, I'm here and... I'm wondering, are, are we in an equal partnership in this marriage? And I was absolutely stunned by that because my self-sufficiency in a sneaky way looked like servanthood, that I was serving her, not demanding anything of her. But I wasn't downstream from that, feeling the, the void that that was leaving. That was such a huge revelation to me and then the next revelation was, Roger, what, you're, what you have in your marriage, you're reproducing in your staff. And I had heard that over and over and over again. And it sounds like a compliment, and it became a, a damning comment. Well, Roger, you don't need anything because, after all, you've got it all together. And it was that moment when, when my wife was willing to share with me how it felt living under my shadow that things began to change. They're still changing, but I tell you that story because I've been able to share that kind of thing with the congregation. And I've had a host of men and couples identify with that, especially in this self-sufficient Minnesota culture. That's very true. <laughs> I'm Scandinavian. A lot of, that has a lot of Scandinavian stuff sure. going on there, but uh, not to blame any ethnic group at all, but that's me. And so that kind of thing I, I want to disclose because it was such a learning for me, and it's not a shaming thing. It's because of the way my wife and I have worked on that. Uh, and it becomes a way for people to say, you know what, he's working on his stuff too. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't share junk. I, I think 
people can over-disclose. And, um, but, but that type of thing, I, uh, those life lessons, what I've learned about my anger, what I've learned you know, about my, my greediness, what I've learned about my introversion, I share those kinds of things mm-hmm. uh, as occasion you know, requires it from, from the pulpit and in smaller groups and certainly with, uh, with men's groups that I'm with. And so I, I, to me, that's been, been freeing that, um, that I can do it in that way. So two follow-up questions yeah. to that. Number one, does your wife get the ketchup now? Yeah. I still go get it. See, I was raised in a home where I was raised in a home where it said basically if you wanted to catch it, but well, you've got two feet, go get it yourself. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, no. Well, you're the stoic but no, Scandinavian. I, I right? deliberately yeah. ask her now. Yeah. Would you make me a sandwich? Would you do this? Would you do that? And they'll sound like simple things, but it also then goes into me just being more transparent about my feelings and my emotions. You know, yeah. would you listen to me or or you know, I'd really rather not do that. You know, uh, or should we do this? You know, so it's, it leads into more things. You know. So how how did that particular lesson from from the counselor translate to your relationship with the staff? What was your what was your first step with the staff? I started asking competent people to do things that I couldn't do, instead of me coming to a meeting and trying to have things mapped out, saying you know let's let's do this. I started coming. Basically, it it changed me from a leader who was trying to direct and, and implement to a leader who tried to find out what's the right question to ask to this group of motivated, competent people. If I know what's the right question or what the right issue is, then say, how can we do this? And that has just flowered <laughs> you know, in, in, in the staff's sense of, of calling and competence. And of course, I've been blessed because I used to leave every meeting with all the notes. Yeah. <laughs> I had the do list. Everybody else went, hey, it was a nice meeting. And, and I would just go get busy. So um, I wish I had about 30 of my mm-hmm. 45 years to do over again. If my identity is solid in Christ, if I know whose son I am, and that, he, that he's not judging me by my competence, then it's... Easier, not easy, but easier to not have to feel like I'm competent all the time, but I'm seeking and wanting to know. And, 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 and uh, I think it also, in leadership, you know, we, have, we read all the business books, you know, about being transparent and being a team. But if the team never sees the leader be contradicted or changed, they're not going to trust that leader. And, but if you know what your identity is, you, you can give up some of those tightly held agendas that you have or, you know, the great idea that you thought was going to really work <laughs> gets amended. And, and, and being a senior pastor could be a very lonely place to be at times. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so the board for a church, how important is that role of being a board member is as and what is the role of a board? Is it to encourage the pastor? Is it to be candid with the pastor? All of that. Uh, all of that. Um, <clears throat> again, I would have to say that uh, the board that I serve with now and that has been in place for probably close to 20 years, obviously there's rotation there, is, is just a fine group of men. And um, 
the, I think the role of the board is is to own the ministry. And if the well, let me let me take you back. When I about eight years ago or so, I came to our board and said I was lead pastor at the time, and I was approaching my. 65th birthday, but it wasn't about age. It was really about watching the church and feeling like, you know, we need some some younger legs in this church. And I I feel like I'm 40, but you know I'm not. You look 40. <laughs> right? I don't, yeah. don't, don't lie to me. But uh, <laughs> but anyway, I mean, energy-wise, I feel that way, but I, I know that, that sure. you know, we needed younger legs. So, and I knew we needed some things uh, in ministry that I just didn't want to do, didn't, I wasn't ready to do. Anyway, I went to the board and I, I said, you know, we need to make a transition uh, to a new leadership, to a new leader. And I knew at that moment that uh, when a pastor does that, the board recognizes, hey, we've got to own this ministry. Uh, and, you know, they can, they, can, they can float along a little bit trusting the staff because we're a large church and it's pretty much staff run. But when I made that announcement to the board... They, they really needed to own that. And, but the joy for me in that was I completely trusted my life to them. And uh, I think that, that only happens with relationship and trust. And I'm very thankful for that. So the board for me was like a, a band of brothers. Mm. Now, that's not always the case. Um, but we cultivated relationship. We had a lot of frank discussions. We didn't always agree about things, but there was a sense of brotherly love there. Uh, and they knew it's not my church. And I knew that too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I transitioned and they began to own the ministry again because they needed to call somebody new, um, I saw that they really cared for the body of Christ. And, uh, and they cared for me too. And um, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. but. Let's let's move into the area of congregational care. No. Okay. Things you've learned uh, about that topic. A large church is an easy place to hide on a weekend. Yes. And a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. Um, and we um, we talked to an organization recently that supplies small group materials to churches of all sizes, and they said, un- literally, until three years ago, churches were not asking for mental health materials. To, to help them care. So what, you know, I know a little bit about, you know, your, your care team, but talk about your philosophy of care for your congregation. How do you, how do you avoid that, of them just coming and leaving and, and, and suffering? Well, I don't know if there's any one answer to that. I think that the posture needs to be the tone from the platform or the pulpit needs to be one of the kind of transparency I was talking about before. You can say it's okay to be not okay, but if you never illustrate that from your own life, if it's just sheer exegesis, it's really not okay to ask a question here that's not about the Bible. Hmm. Um, I think that uh, also every large church like ours needs to become small. We, we've got to have, we call them adult Bible fellowships. We need small groups. But I also think that, you know, when we, when we teach through the scripture, there's plenty of opportunity if you teach expositorily to talk about the real hurts and wounds of people. 
you know, worry and depression and defeat and sadness and sorrow and, and mourning, uh, all those things. Um, so I've always been a proponent of, uh, see, it, it, well, I've, I've prayed for the gift of referral because <laughs> I have many people coming to me and I, mm-hmm. I can't deal with all of that. I have a natural bent in that direction, but it's, it's not really my gift. Um, or my time, and so I prayed for the gift of referral so, so I can refer to other uh, professionals in the area. We have a pretty significant Stephen ministry that's been developed, and uh, you know, dozens of people who give, give care and listening on a regular basis. So I think that permeates the culture. We're, we're not where we ought to be, but we try to be uh, responsive. Um, Recently, we've been through some significant trauma in our church with the leaving of our former lead pastor, and it triggered many people, many women in the church from things that they had experienced in the past, and we tried to be responsive to that. We have a lot of work still to do, but um, we wanted to listen to that. Well, thank you very much, Steve and Roger. That's what we do here on Life Support. We tell stories to help you find a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ through suffering and trauma. And you may feel right now that you are all alone, that your suffering will never end, that that darkness will never lift. But God has promised he will never forsake you. He will always be with you. And please take that to heart because it's true. I want to thank our wonderful sponsors here, the ones who make it possible for life support to exist, Faith Radio at MyFaithRadio.com. You can also see a visual version of this podcast at FiveStoneMedia.com and check us out at Ridgewood Church as well at MyRWC.org. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time right here on Life Support. Thanks for listening to this Life Support podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make a gift now at MyFaithRadio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Life Support, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or your podcast player. And thanks for sharing this audio link with a friend and grow the impact of Life Support.